Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Antler Up Podcast, brought to you by Tethered, the world's best saddle hunting equipment, and we have a fun show for you guys today. On this week's episode, I was joined by Thomas Melzna from The Untamed Ambition. This was such an awesome podcast to record with Thomas. I first heard Thomas on the Exodus Outdoor Podcast, and I knew immediately I wanted to pick his brain on whitetail. And throughout this episode, you'll hear the drive, the knowledge, the passion that he really puts into whitetails, his coaching, his consulting, and ultimately the company, The Untamed Ambition. We cover specific hunting tactics and share some really good stories we can all relate and learn from. To kick this episode off, Thomas explains a little bit about himself, but really doesn't waste any time getting right into whitetail strategies. He breaks down the four key elements that are simple, but extremely effective when it comes to hunting big whitetails. From getting pieces of the puzzle together to execute a specific plan to hunt the buck you're after, and also really the mistakes that we make uh, as hunters that we could really avoid when it comes to next season. He covers it all. Also, we break down how to be a little bit more intentional with your camera setup using historical data in a more effective way to break down an area to set up in the right location. Again, I can't wait to really go back to listen to this episode because I learned a ton while recording and I hope you'll get as much out of it as I did. Thanks again, Thomas, for coming on. Thanks again, everybody, for listening, for supporting. And if you like what you hear, please go leave a five-star review either on iTunes uh, or as well as Spotify. Thanks again, everybody. Best of luck out there. Antler up. Tethered is a team of saddle hunting fanatics with a passionate addiction to whitetail hunting. Designing and engineering products to be a more efficient and confident hunter, Tethered produces the most mobile, stealthy, and safest elevated hunting gear on the planet. Built by saddle hunters for the saddle hunter. Head over to tethernation.com to see for yourself what exactly I'm talking about. All right, everybody, it is that time of year again where you are able to upgrade to the best trail cam that you could get. Let's face it, we all have a camera that's lying around that's either broken or completely worthless. Thankfully, right now, after a ton of great feedback from last year, Exodus is opening up an upgrade program. So how does this work? In short, order any camera on ExodusOutdoorGear.com and use the code UPGRADE to save 25% on any Exodus render, render bundle, rival, or rival bundle. After you place your order, the Exodus team will send you a return label for your trading camera. After receiving the camera, they'll ship it straight to you. I've done this in the, in the past. It's a great program. So if you're new to Exodus, though, and you want to give them a, a, tr a try, 
I'll just say this. They have a five-year warranty, five-year theft and damage coverage, and the best in-class customer service. I've been using Exodus for about three and a half years now, and they have been proven to be reliable, dependable, some of the best features, really the best features of any trail camera that you can get. So be sure to take advantage of this unique savings opportunity and replace any old junky camera with the bulletproof and dependable Exodus camera. This program is only good for the remainder of April or while supplies last. So as always, be sure to head over to their website and sign up for their email newsletter to stay up to date with all their upcoming announcements. And I'll tell you what, I've caught wind of some really cool things that are going to be coming down soon. So be sure to do that over at exodusoutdoorgear.com and sign up today. And hey, everybody, before we get into this week's episode, with turkey season right around the corner, people are going to be out camping, people are going to be out hiking. It's always great to have a dependable, reliable knife on you. And that is why I carry Shea Butler knives with me at all times. Shea's been a great friend of mine over the last three and a half years, has been nothing but amazing supporting us, but also continues to push the envelope, push that needle to improve and make these knives just freaking awesome. I can't exp- really can't really tell you in words how awesome it is. So definitely go check out SheaButlerKnives.com and use our code AntlerUp25. Use it on the Whitetail Blade, the Reverence, as well as the Hostel Blade. Great knives. Love them. So check them out. You will not be disappointed. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to this week's episode of the Antler Up Podcast. On the other line today, I'm joined by Thomas Milsna from the Untamed Ambition. Thomas, welcome to the show, man. Great pleasure to have you on. We just BS for about 20 minutes, and I, I man, I'm already fired up and ready to rock and roll with this episode. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited as well. Yeah. I think our conversation got off to a good start, and now I'm kind of kind of got the blood flowing, thinking about past moments in time that you know make <laughs> make your heart start pumping a little bit but yeah let's get into it i like it dude well uh before we jump down into it i mean i've i listened to you mainly from the exodus podcast with the guys from uh jake and and, and chad and those guys and uh i really thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and when i caught your latest episode this past season that's when exactly i, I messaged you uh and i was like hey when we could get this down i know you're a busy guy with what you have going on so why don't you do a quick introduction that elevator talk of who you are what you have going on because maybe later down in the podcast in this episode we could talk about that because i'm interested on a personal level so maybe sure, sure. you know you could go as long-winded as short-winded as you like right now and then we'll dive into the the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about for whitetail okay yeah um i'll stay short-winded on the intro because <laughs> it's probably probably my biggest downfall as a consultant as i'm not really a giant fan of talking about myself so <laughs> in, a, in a nutshell um I am a, I'm a habitat consultant, a conservation habitat consultant by trade. Uh, and then I refer to myself as a whitetail hunting coach because there's, there's so many variables involved with whitetail hunting and I've been successful from many different angles. So it's hard for me to show up on a property and just be like, do these things, right? It's more so how do we improve a property? How do we create a, a situation that has a lot of opportunities, right? That's, that's the goal. We do that through improving the habitat, getting it back into a, a healthy native state. And then, then we coach on the, the hunting side of things, right? We're always looking for, you know, the perfect setups, 
and really just comes down to trying to figure out how to keep the pressure off the property at the end of the day, right? That's all it comes down to. You can, you can have certain stand locations that work better for some individuals. Some people prefer to hunt, you know, bedding areas or close to them, target those beds. Some people prefer to only hunt food sources. Maybe they just don't like to get out of bed early in the morning, right? There's a lot of variables involved there. <laughs> so my goal is always to go into those situations and improve the opportunity to begin with and then set them up for success and coach them down that path so they can kind of choose their own adventure, but do so in a manner that shortens the learning curve. Right. You know, give them a good head start. Uh, I mean, I fully lay out properties, but again, I like the biggest thing I get all the time is I don't push hard for like true sanctuaries on a, on a private property. Uh, we try really hard to stay out of a lot of areas, but we want to monitor and know what's going on. And, and most of where I am is hill country or, you know, you get into a flat area where sometimes there's these parcels of land that are essentially on an island, right, surrounded by miles and miles of open egg. It's kind of the same thing where those deer, you know, they can get kind of secluded in certain areas and then just comes down to pressure and keeping them on that property without blowing them off. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do, right, is we're just trying to create that that's set up on that property. If we can manipulate deer movement through certain areas, we do that. But, you know, there's just, there's just so many strategies. And, and like I said, every situation is different. I guess my biggest thing is I just, I probably, if you haven't already found out in the last 30 seconds, I've, I over-explain things. It's just like, it's a habit when you're. But for someone, dude, for, for someone like myself, I need that, right? I, I, that's why you, when I listen to your podcast, and I don't mean to, 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 you know, kind of cut you off in this, but your, you explain to my learning, like understanding, if that makes sense, Joe miles, um, he does the same thing when I listen to him on podcasts, like with his, when he talks to, he breaks it down where I'm able to understand and, and under grasp what he's saying. So you two do a phenomenal job with that. So, and so keep going. I'm, I'm sorry to, yeah. to kind of interrupt, but I was just kind of tooting your well, horn on that. <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, but no, I mean, that's the thing is I, so I, I have this philosophy that there's a lot of great hunters out there, right? That's not really, that's not a philosophy. That's a fact. There's a lot of really good hunters out there that they, they just can't explain why they're successful. Right. My philosophy with that is that they just have that instinct, right? We all have that instinct in us somewhere and there's oftentimes things getting in the way of hunting that, you know, we think we have to do things one way or another, you get set on that way. Maybe you learn that from someone you thought it was cool. I don't know. I've never really been in that camp. I've always kind of chose my own adventure, so to speak. Right. And I think it just comes from being a kid that grows up in the woods and spends time out there. And also I grew up on a farm and, you know, I was always in those situations where it was like, okay, you had this thing to get done and, there's no backup, right? It wasn't like, oh, I can just not do this and eventually someone will come along and do it for me. It was like, well, I have to do this. And, oh, I don't have this tool with me, so I'm going to make this happen. You know, it's just trying to do things and figuring things out. That's really what the name of the game is. And with hunting, like I said, it's uh, it's just one of those things that you can do so many different ways. And you can be successful at it so many different ways. And I've been successful at it so many different ways in so many different areas. You know, I've hunted mostly throughout the Midwest, but I've hunted whitetails in Georgia when it was 106 degrees 
the heat index. I've hunted whitetails in Arizona in January. You've hunted whitetails in Wyoming. You know, it's, it's, it's all the same thing. It's just a matter of picking up the pieces or the, you know, finding those pieces to the puzzle and finding the right ones first, right? Like when you put a puzzle together, I'm a parent, right? So I find myself explaining things to kids all the time, right? My oldest son has just turned six. And when you, when you pick up a puzzle and you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, do you just look for random pieces and put it together? Or do you start for the ones that set up that foundation, right? You start for those edge pieces. If you can find those pieces that are flat on one side, you know where they're going. There's only four options at that point, right? It's going on one of those sides. Once you build those edges around that puzzle, then it's pretty easy to start finding colors that match and, and shapes that coincide and start plugging them in and eventually you work your way down and you have this, this complete work of art in front of you. Right. And that's kind of deer hunting at the end of the day. So my, I always thought to myself, I'm like, how do I explain that to someone else? How do I explain how I look for those pieces of the puzzle when every situation is completely different? Right. Mm-hmm. I know everything about my situation. And we were talking earlier about your background hunting big woods. Right. So I was almost on the inverse of that where I was hunting an area that had significantly more food than cover. So how do you target deer when there's 450 acres of alfalfa? Well, they're going to eat alfalfa the night there's a cold front. Cool. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know, throw a pin at a map, throw a dart at a map, and that's where you hunt. You can do that, and then you can, you know, complain about everyone else who hunts in the area and has success and say that they're just lucky, right? right. That's how you can do it. Or you can start paying attention to the details and trying to figure out what those consistent factors are that build those edges around that puzzle. So you get that head start. And that's where I came up with those four key elements, right? The the four key elements, every single aspect of every single situation can be cataloged under one of those four key elements. Most of the time it's a combination of, of the two or of at least two of the four, sometimes all the four, right? So when you, you look at a situation and whatever it might be, and you just ask yourself, okay, what, how does this catalog, if you don't, if it's not already painfully obvious, right. Then you're like, how does that come into play? And then how can I relate that to some experience I've had or something that I know about the situation? And then how can I take that and, and put it towards a theory, you know, and the, and the more of this information you get, the more homework you do, the better your theory is going to be. And then you just seek out to prove or disprove that theory. It might be putting a trail camera out in an area and okay, I'm going to put this camera here. You know, one of my rules with trail cameras is always be intentional with your setup. So put your camera out there trying to collect specific information. Don't just put it out there to see if a deer is there. Right. 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 When is he there? Is he there in the morning? Is he there in the evening? You know, what is, is there a lot of other deer in the area? You know, are you getting a lot of does on that camera along with this buck periodically? Are you only getting bucks on cameras? Like those all, those are all things that tell you what the proximity of that camera is. Like what is next to it? So I'm either going there going, I think he's betting here and this is the adjacent pinch point or I'm, I'm going, I'm starting with, okay, this is a pinch point that he's using. Where's he coming from? Right. And sometimes you're working your way back 50 yards. Sometimes you're working your way back an entire ridge line. Right. It just depends on how, how you, how your property lays out. Also how much property you actually have. That's the beauty of hunting out West where you can see a lot more and there's, 
you know, just, just another hill to climb, essentially another mountain to, to go over. If you want to keep going deeper in the Midwest or even where you are, I'm sure it's like, Oh, there's a fence line or property line and chase is over. So that's the thing. So with these four key elements, wind, pressure, food, and timing, right? So when we're setting up a property, we have control over the pressure. That's the biggest thing, right? And most of the time we have control over the food, We'd never have control over wind. We can only control what we do on that wind and we can anticipate, you know, try and get ahead or plan for certain wind directions, but we don't have control over that. So we have to obey the wind. That's why I would say wind is king, right? Wind is king. At the end of the day, it's king. It dictates so much. It dictates where those bucks are going to bed. It dictates where they're going to move when they get up to bed most of the time. And it obviously dictates where you're going to hunt and how you get to and from that location. Right. And then pressure is the next thing. And and those two go hand in hand so frequently and pressure limits potential. So that's the biggest thing. Like as soon as you have too much pressure on that property, you're limiting your own potential. You know, you have the best property in the world. And if you put too much pressure on it, the potential is going to decrease automatically. And there's a lot of different forms of pressure too but then food comes into play and that food is what really defines the movement, right? So it's going to hold animals in an area to begin with. If the food's not there, the animals aren't there. You know, they're going to be in, in, in close proximity to it. And then you just have to figure out, you know, what, it, what is that distance right. and how far are they willing to move? And then, you know, obviously those food sources change. So that's a big thing too. And then the last thing is timing. It, that's the thing. It's like the, there's always a kicker there. As soon as you figure things out, right? It's like the food, the relationship with food and timing. It's like, you know, some food sources are more attractive at certain times of the year than others. And, you know, just timing in general, you know, you could be talking the short term scale. Like, how are you going to hunt this week? What day of the week should I hunt? You know, I've, I've been fortunate uh, last few years, especially because I'm self employed. But even before that, I had a, a good job that I managed the department. So it was always like, during hunting season, I had a whole crew of guys waiting to cover for me. And it was like, okay, this is the day I'm going hunting. So I had that advantage, right? Uh, but that's a timing thing. It's a short-term timing thing. And if you can predict that, then obviously your chances of success go up. And then even on a long-term scale, you know, an annual scale, the older a deer gets, the more predictable they are. Right. You know, they're, they're unbelievably predictable at six years old. And I would much rather, I mean, size in age, you know, call it trophy status aside, I would much rather hunt a, a six-year-old deer than a three-and-a-half-year-old deer. They're so much easier to figure out. So those four key elements, that's, I, I just started breaking every situation down. Everything fell into those four key elements. And now I've evolved to the point where that's just how I explain everything because it's, it's I, I don't really want to say quantifiable, but it's just a way to catalog or categorize things in a you know, a, a world where there's endless variables essentially. Right. right. So that's the thing. And I think that again, it, it kind of gives you some guidelines where when it comes back to doing that homework, it helps you narrow that focus and build that foundation, that frame around the puzzle and, work, and start, start something to work from. And that's often what most people just need. Right. Yep. Most people out there, if they actually just kind of peel away from something that they think and look at things objectively, they start to figure it out pretty fast. I mean, I, I like to think most people are 
of average intelligence or greater. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. Like, so that's, you just have to kind of peel away from that. Right. And just, and, and look at it from a different perspective a lot of times. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that there's, that there's people out there that are willing to pay to help shift that perspective and speed up that timeline. Um, and that, and that's the reality. I mean, it's, it's hard to do. It, it took me going to college for wildlife biology to kind of pull my head out of my rear and start looking at things differently. Right. Cause I was right. the same as many of us. We grew up in a family and we did things one way and sometimes it was successful. Sometimes it wasn't. And that was just the way it was. That's like the most painful statement that anyone can ever say to me is it's just too bad. That's the way it is or something along those lines. Right. Yeah. It's too bad. You know, things used to be this way. It's too bad. They're not anymore. Oh, it's too bad. That's the way it is. Like, no, that's bullshit. Like you can always improve every situation. It's just a matter of what you're willing to invest into that situation. So that's uh, yeah. I mean, that's it in a nutshell, I guess, you know, if you have a, a specific situation, because again, we could talk, I could talk for four hours on just the wind direction if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think that in most situations it's going to be beneficial to people to, to just hear me ramble off what I know from different experiences of hunting deer in the wind. It's a lot easier to put it to like a specific situation. situation. Right. Spartan Forge stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting to deliver truly intuitive and science-based products that saves the hunter time spent scouting, planning, and executing their hunts. You have deer prediction, journaling, and the best maps on any hunting app platform there is. Use code ANTLERUP to save 20% off your Spartan Forge membership at spartanforge.ai. Yep. Well, before we do that even, and you just were talking about like when you work with people and they ask, you know, the, the, for the help, whether it be for the property or to get, be a better hunter, what are your most common, co- like common themes that you're seeing from these individuals that whether it be from a property or a, improving as a hunter side of things? Um, I would say the most common mistakes I see are how people hunt stand locations on certain winds. Okay. You know, I, I would say 95% of the stands clients have on their properties are in good locations. They're either just hunting them at the wrong time or under the wrong conditions. And, and it, and that's, you know, if you think about it, most people in, if they hunt long enough can figure out what pinch points are, mm-hmm. right. At least the most obvious pinch points. So if you find, and that's, that's where I started. I mean, when I scout a property, I can, I could probably pull up a, a, a map of your property right now and lay out a virtual plan in four or five hours. I'm not going to just like, like I can look at it and give you some like general you know, feedback. Something out of my yep. ass. Yeah. Yep. And it would probably be sufficient, but to really dig into it and understand what's going on, there's a lot of variables, right? But when you when you get into the game where you have the power or the budget to put a food plot anywhere that it allows to have a food plot, right? Or an access road where wherever it allows to have an access road, now you're talking you know, endless variables. But that's not realistic in most situations, right? It's cool when that can happen. At this point, though, I'm, I work a lot harder to preserve and save or rebuild habitat than I do to promote bulldozing habitat, right? So there's something to be said there because that's, that's going to improve your odds 
in general is the habitat side of things and the two go hand in hand. So having a pinch point, finding a pinch point, creating a pinch point, I mean, that that's what we focus on doing while we're building back good, high quality native habitat or improving habitat. Right. You know, as, as simple things as just like changing the stem count in certain areas of your woods that creates a hard edge or a soft edge. Right. And that's going to move deer. They're going to move along those edges always. So you just build your own edges. It's really that, that simple at the end of the day, it's just hard to understand how to regenerate certain things and do it the right way and efficiently. And, and then also, you know, making those decisions because, it takes time for that stuff to develop. So if you make the wrong decision, you kind of hurt yourself, so, but you don't find out, you know, it's kind of like the American diet. Like it, it, it's painful down the road. You just don't really realize it until later. And then all of a sudden you kind of forget what you did to begin with. And then you don't, you know, learn from it and move on. So, yeah, but when the wind direction is a big thing, right? So in hill country, I always strive to be hunting on the Ridge as much as absolutely possible. And the, the biggest mistake I see is guys will have good stand setups and good pinch points, but they always hunt them with the wind blowing back towards the ridge or, or in our situation, a lot of times that'd be back like towards the fields. If the ridges are tillable land or that's where, you know, it's farmed. Um, but I'm, you know, kind of where I am geographically in Western Wisconsin, just North of me is Buffalo County and up there mm-hmm. it's largely wooded ridge tops and the, the bottomland is farmed and then you go south of here to vernon county those would be like the two highest grossing counties and actually i think in the country for boone and crockett and and poking young deer and it's exactly opposite where all the ridge tops are farmed and the bottoms are pastures wooded swampy areas so the deer you know it changes movement but they all like to travel in the same topo lines at the end of the day for the most part it just changes how you access and when you hunt those locations but hunting the wind when it's blowing down that hill that leeward side of the hill working with those dropping thermals in the evening or with the rising thermals in the morning or during the day that's that's the name of the game mm-hmm. you're going to have significantly more mature buck activity doing that so there's, a, there's something to be said about hunting the safe wind which inevitably is never safe because you hit that point in the afternoon when the thermals drop and the wind dies down, then you get, that's when you start getting those weird swirls. And everyone's like, ah, oh, the wind was perfect. And then it changed, you know, that's predictable. That's something that's very predictable. And if you hunt out in the mountains at all, then you understand that real quick. It's, <laughs> it's real dramatic out there. right? Yep. yep. But that's the biggest thing. It's just that wind direction and yep. understanding that. And yep. then also, you know, figure, once you figure that out and figure out the wind, what I always tell my clients is you want to hunt that stand location based on when the buck's going to be there, not when it's safe for you to hunt it. Right. And that's, that's what it comes down to. Cause if you hunt it when it's safe and then, then most of the time the buck's not going to be there or he's not going to travel there because it's not safe for him. Plain and simple. Yeah. Man, you, you're saying a lot of things and my brain is just going because I'm, I'm thinking of my situation, my hunting location, because exactly what you said, it, it's it's ridge after ridge after ridge. And I've had most of my success in the mornings. And what in the years past, the last two years, we've had a really good acorn uh, white oaks just were dropping like nuts. And yeah, pun intended. Yeah, exactly. And years prior to that, man, it, it, when I would say to my dad, like, dude, where the food sources that we're finding is 
you know, later on in the season and it's mainly just, you know, briars and there's no natural on our property, like a natural food source of, or I, I don't mean natural, but uh, like a food plot, like I said earlier, and across the street, across the roads, like where these deer would go and feed, they'd come up, work their way up the mountain. And again, I would have really good success. My dad would have really good success because as the thermals are rising, they're heading up. If I get in the right wind, like I would get in there super, super early and I'm basically cutting these deer off. And the last two years, it's been a little bit like up and down a little bit. And, you know, in the evenings, usually they're going down. Right. And if in the last two years, Thomas, I, man, I've had more deer come up on me in the evening and I'm like, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. right? You know, and it's, I don't, and I, like you were saying about like the food, like, where is that? That's going to dictate the movement a little bit. It's so, that's where I've been scratching my head a little bit because that aspect of things, the wind constantly changing and, and everything along those lines, it's been, I've been in on deer more so the last two years, but it's also been a more frustrating side of things during the archery season because I'm close, but I'm not close enough, if that makes sense. Or, or it's the wrong deer. It's the young, you know, a, a deer that maybe a couple of years ago I would have shot, but now knowing there's the other deer that are moving up there that I have a potentially get a chance at that I want to really have that encounter with. But yeah, I, man, I like this. I'm liking where it's going. So one thing you said there about those deer changing, mm -hmm. you know, and, and changing the direction, uh, you know, again, I don't like to throw out like just random advice would not right. without knowing your situation. Right. I mean, before, before I even do like a pre-consultation, I actually run my clients through an Onyx homework exercise and have them map things out because I think that visualization aspect of your situation is so beneficial from an ed educational standpoint. Right. But what, you know, back to those four key elements and now we're talking wind and food, right? That wind is going to dictate the bedding area and that buck, you know, we know bucks put their back to cover. There has to be adequate cover, backing cover, and they like the wind at their back. And if it's in hill country or anywhere possible, they love the thermal in their face, right? But they also need to be able to see they don't have to be able to see because, you know, I've seen bucks bed in cattail thickets, but usually it's on a slightly elevated area, some spot where there's just like, you know, maybe for, for even 10 yards, it thins out for a bit. They get lined up and see down that row, but they absolutely have to be able to get away. Right. So those are the big things. Backing cover, have to be able to get away, prefer to have a sight advantage along with that scent advantage. And then they, they use that wind at their back all the time. Right. right. So that's one big thing that we know about bucks. The next thing that we know about bucks and where they bed is what's related to the food aspect. And what we know is that the does are always going to bed near the food source as close as they can bed near the food source, generally inside the first row of cover. And that's true. Again, that's true everywhere. That's how we find the bucks out West. We don't, you know, we're looking to figure out where these deer are. If you ever went out and hunted coos deer in the mountains in Arizona, I mean, it's hunting a whitetail that's ridiculously <laughs> small and significantly more skittish, right? And and they can hide real, real easily. Right. But that's how we find the bucks is, you know, first you're trying to figure out what they're feeding on, and then you find the does, and you kind of work your way back from there, and then you start to find those bucks. So I always look for the does, that doe sign, 
to help me figure out where the food source is, especially in an area with a lot of food. You know, so I'm, I'm hunting an area with a ton of alfalfa. And I'll, when I'm stumped at that point in the year, I'll just buzz around the fields and start looking for those spots where you can see where all the alfalfa is grazed down. Some of those back corners, you know, and it's, it's surprising because some situations you would think that it, they should be back there feeding. It's a secluded area, but they're not. What's right. the reason? Who knows? You know, if you have a camera in the area, maybe there's been some dogs running around the area for some reason. Maybe the Amish neighbor was out fixing fence all week and just kind of stirred things up or kept the deer out of there, whatever it might be. There's a lot of variables involved. I mean, anything can happen, right? That's an easy one. That's an easy one to figure out, right? So that's just one example of it. In your situation, paying attention to those acorns, you know, that, that could be it. Is there, you know, a pocket somewhere where there was either a clear cut or some blowdown, some storm damage recent in the last year or so. And that's exactly what happened to this was this past season was year two. So right before I think it was September, we kick off that first weekend in October and it was around end of August or September because I had, it was kind of a historical area. And all of a sudden I, I was like, dad, what's going on back at home? Uh, I had a cell camera there and I was like, all of a sudden this, all I'm seeing is just crazy uh, leaves and everything like that. Uh, like branches. And I, I I knew it wasn't a bear and he goes, Oh man, we, we, we had almost like a tornado touchdown, like a random crazy tornado. Well, I, I actually had, uh, an XOP tree stand hung up that I hunted on out of a couple years ago. And I just left it up there just for my dad to easily get up in or my brother, uh, hunt once maybe during rifle while I get out of there during archery. And that tree actually uh, blew over and a bunch of other trees have been, you know, basically knocked over and everything like that. So that was something the last two years that I think changed movement as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that's the thing is it can change. It can change as a food source or it can change as a a bedding location. If that bedding location gives those deer a little bit better advantage in that cover, and they start to use that. And that's, again, that, that's where all those, those elements come into play. And, you know, pressure, again, limits potential. The pressure is a huge determining factor. Now, the big thing to think about there, you know, and this is where kind of the pressure and the timing come into play is how those pressures change throughout the year. But I, I break it down in the, the way I see it. And, again, there's, there's plenty more out there. But there's four main sources of pressure that these bucks face. The first one is a it's a biological pressure right that's something we don't have any control over that it's just throughout the year you know they're kind of fat and happy and lazy going throughout the summer and then their their hormones start to change their testosterone levels increase in their body and they just automatically start to get more irritable mm-hmm. right it's like a, a juiced up bodybuilder is a lot less passive <laughs> than you know the couch potato yeah. right so that that's a biological pressure. They're automatically more sensitive and more irritable to their surroundings. And then around the same time, you have an environmental pressure that comes when everything that was green and all this cover, all the foliage is on, deer can hardly see very far. Now all of a sudden everything's desiccating and turning brown, drying up. Food sources are dwindling in areas that they were abundant once before. Cover sources are changing. So you have this environmental pressure aspect where that, all of that stuff is increasing at the same time. 
then on top of that, you have the herd social pressure. And this is probably the biggest issue, especially where, where I am, where there's egg around, you know, you have so many does around that put so much pressure on those bucks. They don't really want to spend time with those does until it's the rut. Right. Yep. And herd social pressure, I mean, it's, it dramatically limits potential on every, every property. I mean, that's a scientific fact that when the herd size gets that big and it makes perfect sense, right? It's just, there's only so many resources out there. If all these animals are competing for the resources from a species survival standpoint, the does must get the best resources because all the bucks could die at the end of the season. And as long as the does carry the fawn and give birth and buck fawns are born, the species continues, right? So that's where you see bucks that will travel a long, long distance post rut to find an area that has adequate nutrition for them. So that's a big factor. And again, that's a, that environmental aspect of the stress and then combined in the herd social pressure. And then the last thing is obviously human pressure. So that's kind of a, a normal thing that we all are aware of, I should say, but it's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. So it doesn't take that much to bump deer off of a property or out of an area. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're trying to kill a deer, I mean, in simplest form, the name of the game is just trying to figure out how to kill that deer without him figuring out that you're trying to kill him. Right. Because then everything changes. So, but, you know, we start getting into the the details on the pressure side of things. Again, it's, it's a very, all the stuff I think is so simple. If you just kind of look at it from that simplified lens. Right. So when it comes to pressure, the, the most common mistake that I see is that you cannot judge the activity of does and fawns and young bucks and compare that to the activity of mature bucks when it comes to pressure because the does and fawns and young bucks tolerate completely different levels of pressure than the mature bucks. Right. So if you go into a situation and you see something happen with a doe or a fawn or young buck and it's related to pressure and then you go, oh, that buck's going to do that too. I mean, he's going to do a lot of those things, right? Like if you get busted 100 yards away by a doe, then you're probably going to get busted 200 yards away by a buck, right? Because the does, they push through a lot of that stuff. They travel in packs a lot of times, not really packs, obviously herds. Um, but they they just push those limits a little bit more, right? So they're more tolerant to the pressure. Bucks won't do that. And you'll just spin yourself in circles if you do things thinking that the mature bucks are going to do exactly what the does and fawns and young bucks do. And then from there, you know, we go back to talking about improving properties. There's, there's two things that reduce pressure on deer. There's only two things that reduce pressure on deer cover and consistency. And that's it. So, you know, you talk about how pressure affects travel, the higher the pressure is on the property, the more cover those bucks are going to use to travel. You talk about wind and how that and and the backing cover aspect come in to play with the pressure aspect and where they bed they're going to want to be backed into the most dense cover possible obviously with their wind at their back for sure travel with the wind at their face as much as possible if it's in a high pressured situation the inverse of cover is distance so if, if you don't have enough cover those deer are forced to create distance to feel the same level of security right you know again it's such a simple concept like the analogy that i use for that is like you know, if I, if I draw my bow back and I point it at you, you'd be terrified. I'd be terrified. <laughs> yep. 
I've got a, a five-year-old kid draws back his little Nerf bow and points at me, and it's terrifying because <laughs> <laughs> you don't know when the thing's going to go off, right? Exactly. But if I if I go and I stand behind a chair or something behind a little bit of cover, I feel a lot safer, you know. Or if I go across the room or across the yard, I feel even safer. Yeah, because like, ah, he's not going to hit me from here, or right. I can at least see it coming, right? right? So it's such a simple thing. Deer operate the same way, but one of the things that I think is all too often overlooked in that is the fact that topography is the greatest form of cover there is plain and simple. So they're always going to utilize the topography for bedding as much as they possibly can. And then things just change when those daytime food sources run out in certain areas, they will spend less time in those areas, but they absolutely will bed in areas with zero browse factor, zero browse. As long as they can, you know, if the pressure is high and they can get in and get out of there without getting killed, then they're going to, they're going to bed there. That's all it comes down to. They prefer areas with browse. And obviously a lot of times that browse factor comes with a high stem count. So then, you know, it's even more added security. But then if you take that another layer and think about this, again, back to the pressure scale, right? If you want to think of it that way, darkness is also a form of cover. So if the pressure is too high in the area, that buck might be there, but he's just going to move when he has another layer of cover, which would be after dark. So that's a big thing I see too. And, and I, you know, it took me to have many firsthand experiences with this to, to believe otherwise, when you start thinking about a buck showing up on your property well after dark, well, he, you, it's safe to assume that he's bedding farther away, but it's not like those bucks are just sitting around waiting for an alarm clock to go off in the afternoon to get up and start walking <laughs> towards food. Right. So right. it's not like they start the race at the same time. And the one that gets there first was better the closest. That's not true. It's all, it all comes down to the pressure. I, a couple of years ago, I, uh, I had this buck that I, I had a really good feeling of where he was going to be on just this random, seemingly random October afternoon. There was no major cold fronts or anything. I just hunted that area before and there's a pinch, a really good pinch between two potential bedding areas and there's supposed to be a midday wind shift. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get in that pinch point or close to it. This buck's going to get up and move from one bedding area to the other because there's that wind's going to change. He's going to try and get that wind back in his favor. And as they usually are, well, at least 50% of the time, the weatherman was wrong. The wind shift happened <laughs> at the wrong time of the day. When I got out there, the wind was almost completely dead. Like it was dead calm. And I had to sneak along this dried up cornfield to get back in the spot. And it was so noisy. I got about halfway in and I, I had to back out. I, I was afraid to get too much closer because, you know, my theory was that this buck was bedding within a hundred yards of this location. And I ended up backing out and I went, I took the long way around this field to come in from the other side. So I went probably, probably a quarter mile or so um, down and back around. And right as I came back to where uh, now we're, I'm walking the edge of a cornfield and there's an alfalfa field below that. And then below the alfalfa fields, the wood line, and I'm walking the edge of that cornfield and I come right to where that alfalfa field pinches down and meets the woods. And I was just going to go, I was going to walk inside the woods, like 30 yards. And, and that's where I was going to set up. And it was just dumb luck. I happened to look over and I, I caught something with my eyes that, drew my attention in right and I just took a double take and it you know it was barely even moving and I looked at it for a second and all of a sudden I was like oh that's a deer and all of a sudden he picked up his head 
it was the buck I was there after. It was just dumb luck. He was up, he was standing up licking his balls. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> again, it, it was just lucky timing. He didn't see me. He didn't hear me. He didn't know what was going on. And the wind was dead calm. And as soon as I saw him pick his head up, I hit the deck. I mean, I'm, I have a backpack on, I've got my bow on a sling bandoliered across my chest. I'm carrying a pole saw. I'm carrying a tree stand and climbing sticks. Cause I figured I had to get in this spot. And I figured I'd have to whack one limb off the, the tree on the edge so that I could potentially shoot that gap along the field edge where they like to travel between the corn and the ridge line. Okay. And uh, so I was prepared for all that. And so I, I slunk down, I unloaded all my gear. I knocked an arrow. I, he was standing right next to this big black cherry and I, I could find that tree plain as day. And I brought my range finder down as low as I could. And I ranged it and it was like 40 yards. And I was like, Oh, this deer is, he's going to die. Like I'm not even going to make it back to this spot. I'm going to whack this deer. And I come up with my bow and he's gone. I'm like, no way. Like there's no way he saw me. No way he saw me. And I'm pretty sure he didn't hear me. And I check my wind, pull out my milkweed, checking my wind. It's like, dead yeah. nothing if anything it was coming back up the thermals were rising up the hill so anyways i was like well what am i gonna do it doesn't pay for me to try and slip in here and hang a stand because if he's still here right he's gonna be bedded right. there so I'm, I'm screwed and it doesn't pay for me to to leave at this point not knowing what's going on i mean either way i had no choice but to just sit there because i i drove 70 miles to hunt this deer and now i'm potentially 40 four yards away from him in the first five minutes of my hunt, I need to see how this plays out. So I, I just hunkered down there and I just waited. Uh, the biggest mistake that I made that night was I didn't, I, I had taken like one half a step forward and I was just a, afraid to move because it wasn't a ton of cover. And I didn't grab my backpack with my camera in it. And I had, a, I had a mirrorless camera with a telephoto lens on it. I never grabbed it. But uh, I wish I would have. It would have been a lot easier to tell the story. But uh, anyways, I, I sat there until dark, essentially. Right, I was going to wait it out and see what was going to happen. Because if I look to my to my right down the tree line in this alfalfa field, there's like four really fresh scrapes along this field edge. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, hopefully, you know, nice secluded alfalfa field. Hopefully he gets up before dark, works his way out towards these scrapes. You know, not saying he's going to make that scrape, but it's telling me he's been there. There's been a lot of deer activity there and the wind when it, you know, when the thermal start dropping, when the wind starts blowing the way the weatherman said it was going to, I'm already in a good position as long as he moves that way and not that way. Right. So I just waited out, waited out. And all of a sudden it's starting to get that, that time of the night, you know, when the sun drops below the horizon a little bit, you can feel the, the thermal starting to drop and I catch movement out of the corner of my eye coming across that field. My heart just like, skips a beat, you know, and you're just like, boom, 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 boom. and I, I always, I ask my, my clients, my nephews, everyone that I'm around when I, I'm hunting, I always ask them the same question. So I'm going to ask you this question. What's the first thing that you do when you see a deer? I grab my bow. No, wrong answer. You do, you do nothing, <laughs> nothing because if you grab your bow, you get screwed because I've been screwed a lot of times doing that. And that's yeah. the, that's why I try and I train my kids this and train everyone like, the best thing you can do is nothing. Take a breath and think about what you're going to do. And then are, is it an opportunity to grab your bow 
you know, I, I could tell you a really crazy story about that, but let me finish this one first. <laughs> so anyways, my heart skips a beat. I take a breath and I slowly, you know, my eyes move first, then my head moves a little bit. And here it's this Amish kid walking across the field. He sees me sitting there. He's got a bow in his hand. He sees me sitting there with my bow and an arrow knocked. And when he sees me, he like hits the deck, not playing for me, but like, oh, I'm going to get in the game. Pulls out a camouflage T-shirt from his pocket, puts it on, puts on a face mask, knocks an arrow, and he's he's ready. Like, he, he, he thinks that we're like, we've got a dog on point getting ready to flush or something, right? <laughs> and And I'm just like, my first thought isn't, oh, this Amish kid just screwed up my hunt. My first thought is like, he is right perfectly upwind of this buck. And I check my... I'm like trying to get his attention and he's like locked on the woods where he saw my eyes go. Cause I, I, I thought for sure that buck was just going to get up and bolt out of there. If he was there again, I don't even know if he's there at this point. Right. And so I I'm checking the wind and it's quartering for me. And if I do some basic math or trigonometry, it's definitely blowing straight from him straight to where that buck potentially is. And he's probably about 50 yards away from that deer. And then I get to look in and the, the, the property line is, is a, basically right where he is and he was trespassing, but he was going to cross in and, and hunt the neighbor's property that where the corner post is about 40 or 50 yards from me. And uh, I can see the, the tree stand right there. I was like, man, you were going to, this guy was going to get in this tree stand the last 15 minutes of daylight. He does he has no idea that that buck is there bedding 30 yards behind him. And he thinks he's going to get up and move to that field. And then I think, I was that guy many times in my life, right? I've done that. Like, oh, it makes sense. That's a good spot to go. There's a little pinch point there. There's a food source here. I'm going to catch these deer moving, not knowing where they actually were, right? But anyway, I eventually get this get this kid's attention and, and wave him off. I'm just like, you got to get out of here. Like, get out of here. And he, he eventually acknowledges what I'm trying to say, and he, he gets up and he leaves. And uh, he actually ended up waiting for me by my truck and apologized, so that was good. But uh I wait and I wait and, and sure enough, right at dark, all of a sudden that buck appears in the exact same spot. And he never took his eyes off that location where that kid was out in the field. He never took his eyes off. He moved probably five yards before it got so dark. I couldn't see even through my binos and he, he never took his eyes off that spot. Now, if I would have had a camera on those scrapes on that field edge and that buck showed up there at nine o'clock at night, a couple hours after dark, which I'm sure he didn't hit those fields until it was jet black. Right. I would have automatically assumed that he was betting a long ways away. Right. But knowing that being there and, and witnessing that and knowing that he was bedded right there and he only moved, you know, potentially would have moved that far. It's like, okay, so how many situations in my life can I look back on and think about like how I played the wind the wrong way or had bad timing or a bad stand set up and then just automatically start blaming late pictures on of bucks or nocturnal pictures of bucks on them betting off the property or whatever it might be. Right. So that's where it's like, you start really breaking down those situations and, and paying attention to those things and never just assuming one thing or another, right. because there's so many variables right. at play there. Take the guesswork out of building your own arrows for this upcoming season by ordering a custom set of MMT arrows from Exodus Outdoor Gear. They have developed and sourced literally the most precise archery components on earth to build a tailored arrow for your hunting adventures. Just head over to Exodus's website and plug in your specifications in the arrow builder and have your custom set sent straight to your door. 
and use code AU12 to save 12% off your custom set over at exodusoutdoorgear.com. Man, so that's the, I guess the, obviously we talked about timing there, but then that last key element being the timing and I going back to what you were saying earlier, normally it's two of those key elements have to come together or, you know what I mean? Because it's the wind obviously and then the timing, right? You get in there, you know, when you talk about timing, one of the words that I brought up earlier is that patience, right? And I think now where we're sitting in April, we tell ourselves something and then once the season rolls around, we get out a couple times, maybe things are not going the way they are, you know, we could tend to press a little bit, right? We, we do that full court press and, and things don't go the way <laughs> that we were hoping. I guess maybe talk a little bit about the whole timing as, aspect of things that could help us even practice now, right? Like yeah. to, to, to really key on things because again, you know, I've even said it the last two years. One of the things I want to, look, you know, practice and get better at is walking slower in the woods when it comes to finding that current sign without putting that pressure on, right? Like without saying just walking all over the creation and be like, I have to find this sign. Where is this sign? You know, that's, I guess, the importance of going out now and, and just seeing where past, uh, you know, the, the past season sign has been laid. But you know, dive into, I guess, the, the more of the timing along with certain of the other key elements that, that you really key in on. Yeah. I mean, timing, timing's everything, right? Yeah. That's, that's it. You know, it's, uh, if throughout the season in general, things change so much and they can change so fast. So I always, I collect intel the same way that I hunt. I, I try to keep as much pressure off. So I hunt from the outside in and I do the same when I'm collecting intel. So I, I only run a few cell cameras mm -hmm. because most of the areas on our property don't really have great cell service. So, you know, I can get them in a few random sporadic spots and I can tell you hundred percent honesty that I've, I've only ever had one situation. I've had a couple situations, I guess that I, was put into an opportunity because of those cell camera pictures, but it wasn't like a specific stand location or anything. Right. So um, I'm, I'm just waiting for the most recent information all the time to make those moves. And when it comes down to the certain time of the year, you just have, kind of have to dictate how aggressive you can be or how aggressive you want to be knowing that at any point in time, the more aggressive you get, you know, the more you're stretching that balloon or squeezing that balloon, right. And it could pop, you're putting that pressure on there and it could pop or it could bounce back. So like early in the season, I, I'm not afraid to get aggressive at all early in the season. And the main thing there, I mean, and throughout the whole season, you kind of want to operate the same way again from the outside in, but it, it all comes down to that risk versus reward. If you, I tell my clients this all the time, again, this is the coaching side. It's like, if you have the Intel that supports your theory on a certain area. Mm -hmm. And then you have that Intel that, that supports you making a move, then you, then you should go for it and trust your instincts. Just go for it. Because if you wait around forever, some of these deer, you're never going to have an opportunity on them. I think yeah. a lot of people have that, that problem. Like I, I've got clients with really phenomenal properties and they kill a lot of good deer. Right. They've rarely killed great deer, good deer, not great deer. Right. You know, there's a lot of really good deer, 
there's only a few really great deer. And a lot of times they'll miss those opportunities because they're making aggressive moves at the wrong time. And that's what it really comes down to. So, you know, like early in the season, it's a lot harder to find a mature buck than it is to kill a mature buck. If you can find that buck and not tip him off, he will stay in that area and follow a very similar routine. And they're a lot easier to kill early in the season. Yeah. So if you, if you get that Intel, you need to make an aggressive move right away, not wait because I don't really start hunting until mid October. That's my thing, right? Like, no, I, I, I always get a kick out of it. I, I know guys that have fantastic properties and they've got, some theory where they don't like to kill mature bucks until they've went through the rut. Mm-hmm. Like they try and let them breed. We gotta let them spread their genetics. So like that was, he was a teenager at one point in time. Right. And then he went through college. Like we know how much mm-hmm. activity happens during those eras in life. Now he's a, an old man. He's not running around as much as he, he was. Right. So right. no point in waiting there. If you find them early in the season, go after them. And then the same goes late in the season. I'm always on a timeline because by the time our rifle season hits around here, you know, I'm sure you've heard the the cliche of the yep. orange army, yep. right? Yeah. We have that we here get, in PA. If it's Brown, it's down, yeah. you know, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, I forget, I think all, but one of our neighbors on our farm are Amish. So, and, and I don't want to say that in a negative light because they've gotten a lot better over the years. And that came from working with them and communicating with them. Right. right? So I always, I will say that uh, community communication creates common goals. And I, I push my clients hard to develop relationships with their neighbors. You don't, it doesn't always start out great. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where you start out somewhere and, and build off of whatever you can. And in time it, it improves. But the biggest thing there is just that mutual understanding of what our standards are or what we're trying to accomplish. Because I've seen it so many times where in an area like that, you know, one group of people kills X caliber of deer and their excuse all the time is just, well, if I don't, they're going to do it anyway. Anyway. Well, once they know that they're actually trying to achieve a higher standard than, you know, that, that rising tide. Right. So that's a big thing, but, um, I forget where I was actually going with that. I think with the patience side of things, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. The timing and the patience, right. So understanding the, understanding the timing of the year and, and how aggressive to be, but just that risk versus reward, right? Again, it's like if you get too aggressive and that's where the patience really comes in. Most of the time, if you're not finding the information that you need, then you you just need to change spots or, you know, make an aggressive move to go a little bit deeper, at least cross something off your list. You know, I usually always have a plan B. I I like to have a plan C or D, right? That's not always possible because I'm always just trying to kill a mature deer and that's not an easy task where I hunt (laughs) Um, just how it's all you know it's just the 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 way the land lays out like our farms it's a big farm right it's 1200 acres total or actually I think it's even more than that but it's not you know it's only like 300 and some acres of huntable land and then that 300 acres is broken up into all sorts of different chunks so it's not like a contiguous 350 acres it's like a 40 here uh you know, that, that story I was just telling you about the buck that was bedded that was on like a it's actually on like a sliver of an easement probably like a three acre easement that connects a 150 acre field to a small sliver of woods that's surrounded by highway I mean the whole time I was watching that deer there was jake breaks running down the highway directly below him at one point a guy stopped his truck and was talking to some other guy on the road and I could hear everything that they were saying so it's not like 
it's an easy spot, you know, and that's the thing with it is it's just that pressure aspect and how that moves those deer. So like you think you figure stuff out and then something changes and it blows them out of there. That's why you need to just make those moves when you get that information and not just sit on them. If you understand your situation, you know, if you have a bigger property with a bigger sanctuary and that buck is spending a lot of time in that sanctuary, then again, it's like you should have that patience. Right. You know, one of the, another one of those analogies that I use all the time is of those four key elements. And I think I talked about this earlier. Like when you set up a property, we have control over the pressure and we have control over the food, right? When you don't have control over the pressure and you don't have control over the food, you know, like in your situation, if you're sharing a property like that with other people surrounded by pressure and there's really no high quality food source, then, or in my situation where there's all this food and all this pressure, then it's like trying to duck hunt out the chimney of the cabin, right? You're, you're, you're staring down this very narrow window of opportunity. If you pull the trigger too soon, you screw up your whole hunt. If you pull it too late, you miss that opportunity. opportunity. And it's just a, it's a timing thing. It's a hundred percent timing. And, but you have to figure out those other key elements and how those dictate the timing, right? So you put all those pieces of the puzzle together and then you pull the trigger at the right time. Now, if you have control over the pressure and you have control over the food, it expands that window dramatically. And now you have a little bit clearer vision. You can see things as they change and as they develop, and then you have a lot more patience in that regard. Oh, man. Dude, is is it October yet? (laughs) (laughs) I wish. Oh, my gosh. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we try to... um, maybe think back to yourself, a client, you know, really, I guess, break down and use the way, I guess, like Intel that a hunter or yourself use from either your cameras, historical data, uh, where you're able to really be in that, like you knew you were, maybe someone was in that, was in that right general area. And, and cause that's the biggest thing that when I have, when I talk to people or even for myself, man, I know I'm in the right area, but choosing the right spot. Right. And, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that or a situation that you think could really be beneficial for someone. Yeah. You know, again, any situation, it can fluctuate so much. Yep. Uh, I think it, in again, those four key elements, but it just comes down to figuring out like what some sort of constant is, in that equation. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think it changes frequently, but again, if you have control over the food, then maybe that's your constant that's driving movement. And then you key off of that and start putting the other pieces of the puzzle together. And that's your foundation. For me, I always found that the wind was the most constant in my situation, which, you know, again, that's why I made it difficult to hunt that area because I never had control over food and never had control over the pressure. I share this hunting property with 17 other hunters that all think I'm crazy or <laughs> lucky with how I do things because of my success. And that's it. You know, those were oftentimes those people that would say, that's too bad. That's the way it is. Right. Things used to be better. It's too bad. But I always keyed in on the wind and, and pressure actually, you know, pressure is a very valuable tool for moving deer. If you look for those that information, that, that area of information and how that relates to the deer movement. So you'll see in the, in the planner, and I kind of break these four key elements down, but then I, I have all these charts in the back of the planner and it's nothing 
proprietary by any means. I mean, I used to have these in a notebook. I tried to do the Excel spreadsheet for a while, but we talked earlier about how I don't really, you know, the text aspect versus the writing aspect is so different. Um, so I went back to using a, a pen and paper and then I built this planner for myself and ran it for a couple of years. And I was like, huh, you know, maybe I just print it and, mm -hmm. and share it. And I actually started implementing it or trying to, to incorporate it with uh, my plans and I changed it a little bit. It's kind of a workbook aspect. So uh, the, the pressure in there and everything has a tool associated with it, how you can track stuff. And it, most of it comes down to either, you know, firsthand experiences or trail camera information. You're going to get the most information from your trail cameras because they're out there all the time. So we started looking at any aspect, but the pressure thing is big. The pressure notes, you know, the situation that I've been in where I, you know, always again, play those theories on where those bucks are bedded based on the wind, but then where are they moving and where do you get that, that breadcrumb, right? Where's that right. breadcrumb to kind of take you down that path to find the next breadcrumb and pressure is a big thing. So I, I figured out this buck one year based on the pressure and, and you have to, you know, kind of think outside the box too. These things don't fall in your lap. You know, we, picking up those details or looking at those details. But I was, I was walking to a stand location. I was after this buck, uh, probably a 150 inch 10 pointer, really, really nice deer, mature deer would have been at the time. It would have been my biggest buck for sure. I mean, it might maybe even bigger 150 wide, beautiful 10 pointer. Uh, I was, I was going to go try and set up on him down in this Creek bottom. Okay. And, playing the theory that he was betting on one side of this valley or the other. And I knew he traveled that Creek bottom late in the evening and it was a good setup. You know, I don't generally like to hunt low period, but if I'm going to hunt low, I try to hunt as low as I can. And in the evenings when those thermals are dropping and they drop right down the Creek bottom and it's a much safer setup. So I was working my way into this Creek bottom and uh, I got probably four or 500 yards from the line fence. I wanted to get in there probably about a hundred yards away from the property boundaries where there's a good Creek crossing that I knew the deer used. I wanted to set up there and I got about, yeah, about halfway there. And I, I noticed a, a small buck kind of was running through the woods and he wasn't, he didn't seem like he was running from me in the wind. It, you know, my wind was kind of pushing right down the Creek bottom, kind of paralleling him. And he just, you know, he didn't act like it didn't seem like I bumped him. So I just kind of held up for a little bit and waited and I started scanning with my binos and all of a sudden I see this Amish kid walking down the fence line. And pretty soon he pulls up and he's scanning with his binos and I can't tell if he's looking at me or if he's just looking at the deer, whatever. Right. But I was like, okay, this kid's out walking around. Is he fixing fence and scouting at the same time? Is he scouting? I don't know, but he's out walking around. So I hunted that evening. I didn't really see a whole lot. And, um, the next morning i think i hunted up on top of that ridge but the wind was different and i i slipped in and on my way out i pulled this this trail camera card in this pinch point which this pinch point in particular was created by a, a gap in the fence there's a fence line that goes across okay. the top and there's a, a big gap in that fence and uh anyways i pulled that card went home checked you know a lot of times i come home you know whatever evening i come home and have dinner with the family, put the kids to bed and I'm chomping the bit to go check those cards. And I go check the card and I start scrolling through it. And I realized that that day before that buck was on that camera, like 
minutes before I came out there, right on top of the hill from where I was. So I, then I was like, at first I was like, how did I miss that deer? Did I bump that deer? And then all of a sudden I started looking at the time and playing it back. And I'm like, okay, that Amish kid walked through that area right before that buck came out of there. And I looked at the wind and I'm like, okay, that makes sense. If he was bedded here, he would have had the wind at his back basically looking at that fence line. And when he got up to leave, he would have gotten up and ran right straight into the wind. So that's one guarantee when a a pressured deer almost always runs into the wind. You know, if not immediately, they might hook around and then get that wind back in their favor. So that that's one thing. No. So I put together a really complicated plan. It made perfect sense in my head. I I shouldn't even say complicated It's intricate, but it was a good plan. Uh, I was gonna, I, I got a hold of a buddy of mine and it was like three or four days later, the wind was going to be out of that same direction. It was a Saturday morning and we I was going to go set up in this pinch point. I was going to wait until like mid morning, go set up in this pinch point and then basically just have him go walk that fence line. Yeah. And the problem was that I got a text from my cousin the night before he was down hunting and he ended up making a, a bad shot on a buck which it happens, uh, but we spent like three hours the next morning looking for that buck, so it got out to the woods later than I wanted. Anyway, I walked into the woods uh, from the field edge to this pinch point was probably about 150 to 200 yards. Got about halfway between point A and point B, and I heard something running, so I dropped my climbing tree stand. I had a climber at the time. Now I run a, a hang-on and sticks. Tried the saddle game. Didn't really like it a whole lot. Still playing with it. But anyway, I uh, had a climber at the time. Dropped that, knocked an arrow, got ready. Here comes this doe up over the hill. Runs by me at like 30 yards, stops, looks back, just panting, mouth wide open, tongue hanging out. Right behind her, little basket rack, eight. Right behind him, little like spike or fork or something. And they turn, they run right up into this bedding area where I thought that buck was bedded. And I'm like, okay, it's on, right? I got to get going. So I... I get over, I get to the tree, I get set up, the climber, I start climbing up. Uh, the last time I had hunted, I think it was raining, and I, I threw my pants in the dryer when I got home so they wouldn't be all musty, and my pull rope was in the pocket, so it was all, like, spun up and, like, 50 knots tied in <laughs> yeah. it. So I didn't really think of it. I just, like, pulled it out of my pocket, clipped it to my stand, clipped it to the bow, started going up the tree in the climber, and, the of course, the only tree – that worked in that spot was a shag bark hickory on top of it. So I'm like trying to thread this needle with a table on the climber going around the shag bark. And I get up off the ground about 10 feet and my pull ropes tight. My bow's like up off the ground halfway. I'm just like, this is a nightmare. Like everything (laughs) that could possibly go wrong today is going wrong. And all of a sudden I, I feel my phone buzz in my pocket. My buddy's sitting out in the truck waiting for me to text him and say, go for it. And, uh, I feel that buzz and I'm just like kind of frustrated, like trying to figure out this pull rope situation without making too much of a racket. And all of a sudden I look through the woods and I just see this, this huge frame coming right towards me, right towards this fence gap. And uh, I pull my bow up real quick, knock an arrow and get ready. Well, here he comes in. It's this big mature eight pointer, but he's got an entire main beam broken off and he's working his way right towards that fence gap. And here's an interesting thing. He stops about 20 yards behind the trail camera. And the trail camera is facing me. It's on the backside of the tree to him. He stops. He goes up the fence row about 30 yards, jumps the fence, loops back around to that main trail and cuts down, drops into that creek bottom, completely avoided that camera in that pinch point for whatever reason. Wow. 
So anyway, about I get I get up the tree the rest of the way. I get set up, and I look at my phone. My buddy's like, the text from him when I felt my phone buzz about you know five ten minutes prior, and he's like, the big one's coming right towards you. He just ran across the field, and I, I'm just like, yeah, he saw that eight pointer, right? Yeah. Well, I text him back, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, just walk. Like I'm ready. Like, like just walk that woods out anyway. So he gets up there, comes to the tree, and he's just like. You're never going to believe it. And I'm like, let me guess. A doe and two little bucks ran out of there, and a big buck was behind him. He's like, how would you know? I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> Literally like 15 minutes late. That doe and those bucks went through that bedding area, picked up that big buck. They all ran across the field 30 yards from where my truck was parked where this dude's sitting, you know, picking his nose or whatever, waiting for me to send him a text <laughs> to get out. If he would have his bow ready, he probably could have shot him and got a shot. I ended up seeing that buck and that doe and those two young bucks, they ended up coming up the ridgeline by me like four hours later and dinking around out in the woods, like, you know, 150, 200 yards away all afternoon. But, you know, you can't pull a buck off of a doe at that point. Right. So, but I, you know, I put together those pieces of the puzzle, the wind and the pressure aspect and played that theory that he was betting there on that wind and he was moving, you know, that direction and, and like, I'm very confident that if we would have been out there a little bit sooner and bumped that deer, he would have flown right through there exactly the way he did yeah. a week later or a week prior. So that's one of those situations. Again, it, but it comes down to just like finding what that constant is in your situation or something that you, maybe something that you understand better in any situation. Right. Right. And then, and kind of building off of that. But you know, a, a big thing that I do now and I, you know, it, it wasn't by design back then. It was just kind of how things evolved with data collection. Is I, I always try to have cameras on the exit routes of either properties or you know valleys. If you know, even if I'm out west or something, and I'm not a, I'm not around a camera, but I'm going to set up over a saddle or an escape route, right, and get above that pressure before opening day and see what's moving up through there once that basin gets all the activity. And, and that's how you can learn so much on your property about how your own hunting habits affect your property just by correlating your activity or any human activity on that property with the, the direction those deer want to move using that wind mm-hmm. and the escape routes when they use them. You know, it's, it, yeah. I just, I just put together a plan, a property plan today or finalized it, presented it to the client, uh, gorgeous, gorgeous property in Buffalo County, Wisconsin, really challenging access. Uh I, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do to improve that for the most part, but we are always going to be limited to some degree. And one of the biggest things I told him was, was like, you know, again, back on the coaching side, like it makes sense to never go in these areas. Mm-hmm. That being said, this area of your property is a completely different travel corridor from the rest of your property. So we can do all these things to create all this really good movement in huntable areas on your property and, and some of the movement coming from this ridge top travel corridor is going to pull down your property. Right. But it'd be ignorant to think that you're going to hold all these bucks on your property all the time when everybody in Buffalo County is planting food plots and doing TSI and building bedding areas, right? So then it comes down to that pressure game and, and your location. You know, pressure is a very relative thing. So even if you're not putting any pressure on or you know hunting very minimally, if the property next to you has zero activity and better cover, then it's automatically a lower pressure area, right? Right. But that Ridge Shop travel corridor that he had, you know, I just told him, I was like, if you can get in here and hunt it under the right conditions, it's going to be phenomenal. Yeah. 
but you need to monitor your exit routes and, and, and be honest with yourself, right? Like when you go in and hunt a spot, if you don't see any deer, then you need to start looking around at these exit routes of your property and find out if you bump those deer and then just don't hunt there again. Right. Or don't hunt there under that, that set of conditions and just alter that and play around with it, but be willing to risk that from time to time because you're missing opportunities when you don't hunt those areas. Now that's not the same on every property, obviously. Right. 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 The one thing that I wrote down that you said was having that intentional camera set up, you know, I guess generalize or what does that mean to you? Right. Like we could be scouting, you find that scrape and, Oh, that's a great scrape. I'm going to toss a camera up, see what's on it. This looks like this scrape's been hammered. It's a community scrape. You know, what, what does that really in, of that piece of the puzzle, what does that really tell you that you want to get out of it? That's exactly it. What is that thing that you're trying to find out? Mm -hmm. You know, you should, you should ask questions and look for those answers, right? That's, that's like the same thing. I, I trying to condition like even my clients or, you know, even my kids, it's like, going out and like listening to a program or something like this is great. You're soaking up information, watching YouTube videos or you're learning stuff. It's good. But if you just like fall into this trap of just pulling in things without trying to apply them to your situation, then it kind of changes how you, your perception for any situation. Right. So don't go out and just throw a camera out for any reason. Just figure out what those questions are. You know, are you trying to figure out when that buck is moving through there? Now, why is he moving through there in general, right? You know, mm-hmm. you can start putting those pieces of the puzzle together, but just trying to answer questions in general and prove those theories or disprove those theories is, is what it really comes down to. But trail cameras, I mean, they're they're a game changer, obviously. I mean, it's it's they're one of the most valuable tools in figuring out that movement. Right. Is it absolutely necessary? No, absolutely not. You know, and in fact, I actually enjoy hunting out west and you take that aspect out of the game because it it changes your standards changes the timeline in general right and it's Mm -hmm. a lot more pure way to hunt i think Uh, that being said i I mean i worked for a trail camera company for 10 years and i've probably ran more trail cameras than pretty much anyone (laughs) out there i mean i've i right now i have i mean probably something like 30 million trail camera photos and videos i've got like a 12 terabyte hard drive full of them. <laughs> and it's just like, I just, you know, my background's in biology. And then I end up with this job where I have unlimited trail camera resources. And I have this just like ripe curiosity to try and figure out all of these things with these deer. And I just like got addicted to trying to collect that information all the time and process that information. And, and you are always going to be the best thing to process that information right again it's right. like you, we talked about the app thing earlier and that's where like you know again it's great it's like a, it's a really great sales pitch You're like here's some electronic thing that you can set parameters and import data and it's going to predict the best location for you to hunt i i could put together a an app i actually built a fair amount of this i've worked with a guy um, that basically utilized these tools in this planner and had a way to process things um, a bit, you know, an algorithm, so to speak, that would be far more effective, but it was, it was almost, it kind of took the fun out of it. Right. And that's where it's like writing that stuff down and like, and there's always these variables involved there. Right. But Chris, with the way AI is now, like 
you could do it. And, and why though? Like, what's the point, right? That chess match that you get by processing the information with your own brain and, and reliving those experiences and trying to relate those to future potential experiences, that's where the fun comes in play. Right. And, and just, you know, again, digging through those details and stuff, but the trail cameras are, you know, they're such a valuable tool. And I, so I have five, I call them considerations, you know, they're more so rules for trail camera success, but these are things that I've developed through you know, 10 plus years of, of prototyping yeah. and building cameras and testing cameras. And, and more importantly, um, serving and helping customers. I mean, I've worked with tens of thousands of trail camera customers over the years, everyone from researchers that, you know, if they didn't have the appropriate setup, they could lose their entire research budget. I mean, we had a group of researchers that had to fly, they were taking helicopter rides up into the mountains to set these trail cameras out for, I think they were doing like bighorn sheep studies. And, you know, it's like tens of thousands of dollars. Right, right. To go back and change the card on that camera. So if things aren't absolutely perfect, that's a big deal. So, you know, I've just developed a lot of these things over time, but how they apply to the hunter situation, I think it's just important for people to understand them. And they're not anything crazy, but I think people use cameras so casually sometimes yeah. that it, it actually, and that's fine if that's what you want to do, but uh, it's just a valuable opportunity that you're missing, I guess. Yeah. So, um, the big thing, you know, my, my number one rule with trail cameras is that trail cameras only tell you where, where you should have been, not where you should be. And, and cell cameras just tell you where you should have been a lot sooner than non-cellular cameras. Right. So that's the thing is if you, if you rely on that information to kind of tell you where you should go, you're always going to be a half a step behind. Right. Instead, right. like use those cameras to prove or disprove those theories. America's Best Bowstrings has been manufacturing high-quality custom bowstrings in the USA since 2006. America's Best Bowstrings strives on the commitment to never end the search for perfection, and this has been the driving force behind the company. Innovative products for every archer out there. Go create a custom set today at americasbestbowstrings.com. I'm thinking like growing up. Right. Like we were just saying, growing up, I, my dad, we would walk around, walk a property where the past couple of years going around public here in central PA, you know, it used to be like, oh, this is a nice, good trail. It's crazy beaten down. Let's see what's on it. Right. Like I, I luckily I've grown without even listening to podcasts and other people to kind of graduate to that next thing of having that intentional purpose. And I would say Thomas last year, was my first year where I had a game plan or I would scout and I'm like, okay, I'm not necessarily ready to throw up a camera in here. I want to see maybe something else to that will kind of solidify why I want to put a camera here. And because of doing that, I felt like, again, I like I told you earlier, there were more deer, more mature deer on camera that I've ever had before as, as a hunter. And that is the one key aspect of the trail camera game, quote unquote, of being more intentional with where I'm putting it. That has made a difference for me, I guess, of, of being able to know of of how could I hunt that area, maybe 
have an intent rather than, oh, I'm just going to go in there today looks good, right? Like how you were saying earlier, going with your gut instinct. Um, but that's the other side that I think where I had an intention to it, but I still maybe did not have like a checklist as to why. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, that's the thing is you don't have to have it narrowed down 100%. Right. As long as you're working towards that because that breadcrumb yeah. analogy, right? It's like yeah. you're always just trying to gain that information. You know, one of the, one of the things that I frequently do is I, I try to run cameras in tandem a lot of times. Okay. Where, you know, like you've got that camera in that spot that it just seems like a good spot. Okay. That's that's part of the Bread pieces of the puzzle, yep. like one of those breadcrumbs. But getting a one picture of a deer in any given area only tells you that that deer was in that area at that time. time. Okay. You know, and that's another, that's another trail camera rule. Actually, it's a second, a second trail camera rule is it only tells you what happens directly in front of that camera. Yeah. So that's a big thing is like, you have to understand that one picture alone, you know, even like on a food plot or a scrape, like it's easy to assume the direction that deer is coming from based on how we approach that camera. But I've seen it many, many times where they, make a loop around the camera, one direction out in front behind, whatever, not specifically the camera, but they might circle around that scrape or whatever that target area is. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So there's that, but having those cameras in tandem now, if you can get two pictures of that buck over a certain duration of time, at least then you have a sense of direction of where he was coming from, where he was going. Right. And then you, then that, you know, that information on both of those cameras is significantly more valuable at that point. And then you can start to kind of hone in, you know, again, the timing elements, the food elements, obviously if you have it really close to a food source, then you're trying to, you should be trying to figure out when he's using that food source or if he's using that food source. And if you have an understanding of where the, the bedding areas are and you have it closer to that bedding area, it's the same thing, right? It's like, right. You, then you're trying to figure that out. One biggest, one of the biggest things with bedding areas is if you have the theory that that buck's bedding in an area, right? So that, I mean, essentially when I'm trying to kill bucks on our property, I, most of the time early in the season, I'm trying to get closer to where their beds are because I have to cross the destination food plots at night, Mm -hmm. which is a problem. So if I blow them off those, they're not food plots, I should say fields, uh, you know, the alfalfa fields and bigger egg fields and whatnot, because that's where they're hitting most of the time early in the season. Um, But, you know, they're hitting those food plots too, but I try to save those food plots to keep the pressure off those as long as I possibly can. Right. But uh, I try to get closer to the bedding area so that the deer are moving sooner and then I can hopefully slip out a different direction or something. But if I'm targeting a bedding area, you know, so, okay, I, I find that bedding area or my theory is this is the bedding area. Then the next thing I'm trying to do is find the closest adjacent pinch point to that, that I can safely get to without blowing deer out of that potential bedding area. From there, I'm either hunting it, I'm either out there hunting it, right? Or I'm putting a camera up over it. And if that's my theory is that that buck's bedding in that bedding area and under these wind directions, he's going to move this way, Mm -hmm. then he should come through his pinch point. So if I can prove that theory with a camera, then I should be able to prove it from the stand. You know, that's the next thing, but that comes down to also understanding the wind. And that, that's really where those pinch points come in important. You know, the, the most important aspect of a pinch point 
isn't so much that it's moving a deer through a, a, a shot, shot window or a shot right. opportunity. It's that it's moving a deer around where your scent is going. Right. You know, and, and you're concentrating them in an area where your scent's blowing away from. So, but with the cameras, yeah, being intentional with spots like that, if you're getting a lot of does on those cameras, it's absolutely not a buck bedding area. You know, he's bedding downstream of there. Uh, the, the biggest deer I've ever killed, I had that camera soaking most of the summer and I checked it the day that I killed him, but there was only like, I think there was like 85 motion events on that camera over the course of like two months. And there was only like one sequence of photos where there was does coming through there and all the rest were bucks, Bucks. uh, like the same three or four bucks. And there was this one little buck that was with that big one frequently, but back to, what I was saying, the only the camera only tells you what's going on twenty feet in front of the camera. When that buck came in that night, that little buck was with him, and he walked past the camera, and I got a picture of him. The big buck never triggered the camera; he was out of range because he was up the hill from it. So, if I would have just operated under the assumption you know, that buck wasn't there, there's right. just the, the young buck there, then you know, yep. uh, again, so you, you just don't know. In the research world, we refer to that as a sampling rate. Right, You're, You shouldn't use your cameras to try and tell you everything that's going on in your property. You should use them to sample certain elements of what's going on in your property. And then, you know, you, under safe, reasonable assumptions, you can extrapolate what's going on and, right. and predict, you know, at a, at a different scale. So that's, that's uh, you know, those are a couple of big things. Um, you know, and then the other thing, another one of my trail camera rules, and we already talked about the being intentional with your setups. Um the fourth trail camera rule is understanding the pressure element of cameras. You know, so that's a whole nother thing. And, and I know the Exodus guys talk frequently about that, raising your cameras up, even going, you know, away from straps and using paracord and stuff like that. And I can't stress that enough either, but every situation is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I frequently will set my cameras lower, like knee height on food sources. And I, I think it just comes down to giving those animals space you know, if they're coming down a tight corridor on a trail or even a scrape situation or a water hole or whatever it might be where they're, you're trying to get them to shove their head in front of that camera and that camera's low, you're going to, you're going to put pressure on them for sure. Yeah. But if it's on like a food plot or something where they can see that camera and they can judge whether they want to get closer to it or not, uh, then it's a little bit different situation. But anytime you're in the woods, Anytime you're over scrapes, stuff like that, keep them off the main trail, get them as high as you can reach them, jam a stick behind them, angle them down. You know, the, the only negative to that is the fact that it shortens your target range, right? Cause you're, but you shouldn't need that range anyways, cause you're targeting a very specific area, a, a trail, a fence gap, you know, scrape, scrape. water hole and so on. And, and that's a big thing. And then also just understanding, you know, from a quality standpoint with pictures, anything between that target area and the camera that reflects light is going to affect those nighttime pictures. So if you have that branch hanging down in front of it, that's going to expose and the camera's going to adjust, then everything behind it's going to most likely be very dark or black. So that's a big thing. And then the last, the last rule, the last trail camera rule, you know, kind of encompasses everything we've just talked about. It's just the fact that you should put high value on that information and catalog it and store it because that historical information is worth as much or more than anything. Right. Because those bucks are so predictable and things play out 
is so similarly year to year, not every year, but what you see is like, you know, you get into a buck and he, he develops these routines that you can key in on. And then five years later, completely different deer, you start to see the same pattern. You're like, okay, that buck did this. I'm going to try this. Sure enough, he's doing the same type of thing. And, and it all comes down to those four key elements, right? And how those change throughout the year. So I like it because you basically use that Intel, right? I, I just feel exactly. like so many, and I've been a victim of that years ago. And, and, you know, I could even say even to now, like use that Intel, use it with a purpose, like have a purpose, have a meaning behind what you're doing. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And that, that's, it's just one of those things where it just simplifies it yeah. right if you're yeah. looking through those things you find those things and how you know and then we start to come across this other information does it fit under one of those categories because if it doesn't it's probably just nonsense yeah. you know you're I, and i'm guilty of it too like you start overthinking situations yep. but how does that play into this situation how does that actually relate it really doesn't okay then i, I shouldn't worry about that just focus on these things these important these key, key critical elements but <laughs> the what's something a hunter experience newer getting over the hump what should we avoid next fall what's something that we should not try to fall victim of hmm. that's a good question um i mean the instinct thing is huge yeah. right um trusting your instinct but also understanding that you're likely to make mistakes you know, it's life in general is pretty simple and I don't claim to have it mastered by any means. Right. But if we're all honest with ourselves and we keep trying things, but learning from our mistakes and, you know, being honest and reflecting, you know, some self-reflection and be like, okay, I screwed that up. Right. And I see that frequently. And again, I was, I was in the same boat. It's like, you have a million excuses why things don't work out, but look for the actual facts in those situations. Mm-hmm. And, and trust your instincts. You know, it's like, there's a, I mean, it's a, it's actually like a scientific process or a mechanism in your brain, uh, this neurological center in your brain, the reticulating reticulate activating system, I believe it's called. And that's basically, it creates the playlist of what your eyes see, what you hear, like the information that you soak up. Cause if we picked up all the information all the time, we'd be going crazy, right? There's so much stimulus out in the environment. So that reticulating activating system, uh, you know, it's like the situation where you go out car shopping or something and you've never ever in your life noticed a certain model or a certain color of car until all of a sudden you like go and look at one at the dealership or you see one online that you'd like. And then all of a sudden you notice it everywhere, mm-hmm. right? You just notice it everywhere. That's what that is. Is like you're creating that playlist. So you can train your brain to focus on certain aspects, and that's again why it's so important to write stuff down because all of a sudden you start to key in on these things that actually make sense and are applicable to your situation. Right. And then when those things come up next time, you notice them right away, mm-hmm. and you're already ahead. And you're noticing these things, and then you pick up on stuff, and now you have a step ahead. So your instincts start to kick in. You can develop those instincts. And one of the things in my planner, and again, you don't have to have the planner for this, but the reason I have this area of my planner is on the, on the daily planner, like those weekly spreads where you can use as a daily scheduler. And then I've got a workbook version where it just has a monthly spread, but every single day there's an area there to jot down the forecast. 
the wind direction, the wind speed, the high and the low temp, and then, you know, is it, is it sunny, partly cloudy, cloudy, or precipitation? Jotting that down helps immensely. Mm-hmm. And what I try to get my clients to do, I just tell them, like, you know, for me, it's usually Sunday morning. Sunday morning's my day where I don't really have anything going on. Saturday, I feel like I'm always trying to cram one last project in while having all my kids and stuff at home. Um, and it's fine. Like we're trying to get things done and Sunday's kind of that relaxed day. So I'm having my cup of coffee, pull up weather app and jot that stuff down. It's not always accurate through the week because things change, but you start to kind of get this routine of looking at the weather and, and how is that going to dictate the week? Now you write that down. It kind of locks that those patterns in your brain. If you did your homework and you filled out some of those charts in the back, the pattern tracker, tool in there that helps you kind of figure out how the wind dictates the movement. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you start to see these wind changes develop in the week and, you know, maybe it's the middle of season, maybe it's outside of season, doesn't matter. And if all of a sudden your cell cameras start blowing up that day, then you kind of put two and two together or, you know, you see that wind shift that you need. And now because you've been doing your homework, you're like, Oh, that's actually the wind that, that, that puts that that's buck in that area. That's the day I need to hunt. And you know that three days ahead. Now you start watching that weather a little bit more throughout the week. Okay, I'm going to make my move here. You go out there and you kill that deer, right? But that doesn't happen just by like randomly pulling up your phone on Thursday afternoon or Friday afternoon and be like, oh, the wind is doing this. What stand should I hunt? And I get that. I mean, some situations, most situations are probably like that. Mm -hmm. So I understand, you know, it's it's an advantage to have that flexibility in your schedule. But you know, you can plan those things otherwise too. On, a, on an annual scale, those deer are so predictable. And we're talking about that timing element. They, I always had this theory that mature bucks knew when certain does were going to come into heat. Because mm-hmm. you'd see this year after year, the same buck would show up in the same area right. around right. the same time frame. And then uh, I think it was MSU came out with a study a few years ago that showed that the the specific day that a doe comes into estrus is related to a, a specific gene. It's dictated by a specific gene, and that gene's passed on to their female offspring. So, and it makes perfect sense because from an evolutionary standpoint, it in, from an evolutionary standpoint and an environmental standpoint, if that doe gets bred at the wrong time and her fawn's born at the wrong time, the chance of survival reduces dramatically. So, for example, further north, like northern Wisconsin, uh, you know, probably even up in like Maine, getting up into Canada, we would think that the rut would be sooner because it, the winters right. happen sooner. But it's actually the opposite because if that fawn is born, if that doe gets bred too early in the fall and that fawn's born too early in the spring and you get a late snowfall, that reduces the survival rate of that fawn. So through evolution, it's it just kind of altered that geographically. Um, so you see the same thing, like actually down in Georgia, the rut down there is kind of weird. There's like pockets of different ruts because a lot of the deer in Georgia are actually transplants from Wisconsin. Years ago, DNR worked out some deal. I don't know they traded something rough grouse or who knows, uh, you know, whatever they did. <laughs> yeah. But so you see that all the time. So knowing that, you know, you can, whether it's a buck you've been after for a couple of years or a completely different buck, if you know that your area, your a certain area of your property is a hot spot, a hot pinch point during a certain time of the rut, then you need to be 
planning to take your vacation the next year around that time because it's going to be a hot spot. That might change, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there based on how those does change bedding based on the food source changes and stuff like that. But generally speaking, it's going to be pretty dang accurate. So you need to key in on that. And you can predict that years like long ahead. I mean, yeah. I've, I've yeah. had four different situations in the last 10 years where I predicted to a two day window when the mature buck was going to be in a certain area. And it's still scary when you go out there and it actually happens because in the back of your mind, you're just like, nah, like, no, things can be this perfect. <laughs> like, like literally the exact day that I picked on one buck, it just happened to work out perfectly that the wind was out of the East on October 4th. Like how often do you get those East winds? winds? I mean, on the front of those cold fronts, a lot of times, but it's just like, it just worked out. And it was a Friday afternoon. I was like, Oh, this is absolutely perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. Got out there first hunt of the, of the season to have my target buck ended up coming in like downwind to me circling downwind and caught just a little bit of my scent from the thermals and got out of there but he had gotten bumped by an atv like 10 minutes before that so it changed how he moved through that valley he was coming up out of the escape route instead of coming out of the ridge so he got blown off the ridge dropped down and came back up anyway i didn't kill that deer uh but I got to stare into his eyes for like <laughs> five majestic moments. And it was, it was awesome. Uh, he ended up getting killed like a mile away. He never came back to the property after that. Wow. So and that was a deer. I had a lot of history with it. That one kind of hurt a little bit, but I ended up killing a really nice deer later that year. That was probably actually bigger score wise, but wasn't as old. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just how it, that's just how it happens. It, they're very predictable. Yeah. And that comes from doing that homework though. And like jotting those notes down and training your brain to look for certain information. And, and then again, like just being honest with yourself. And also it's like, you know, that, in fact, that exact buck the year before I screwed up on him by not trusting my instincts. Like, I know that if I hunt this spot at this time, I can kill this deer. Mm -hmm. And then I just got, it's kind of, I don't know if you want to call it selfish, but I was just like, man, if I wait, like it was like a Tuesday, Wednesday window. Like if I wait, if I can push this to Thursday, then I can hunt Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I don't have to take off two days in the middle of the week and then come home and then try and take off two days in the weekend. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'll push it. I, you know, so my gut told me Tuesday, Wednesday, and I was like, ah, I'm going to do Thursday, Friday. That deer was in that pinch point during the daylight, Monday, Tuesday, twice twice the day, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday I hunted and he came through an hour before I got out there and he left or he came back through again an hour after I left. I hunted all day in that pinch point. I hunted all day in that pinch point three days in a row. And the last day I was so like worn out. Like you sit out there in those November winds all day and, and just frustrated, like kicking myself and, I went out and I checked every camera I could and that there's no sign of that buck. I was like, yep, he's locked down somewhere, probably a mile away. Yeah. And then it was just dumb luck. I, uh, I just took my truck and I drove out in this backfield where I had a camera right on the field edge on a community scrape. And I'm like, I'm just going to go check this, just kind of shot in the dark, see what's going on in this back corner here. And I parked my truck and I opened up the door and out of my peripheral, I could see movement from the he- side of the headlights. And I, I get back in the truck and I look and I can see a deer and I put it in reverse and I turn the wheel and the headlights shine and that buck is bedded there 35 yards away from me. And the doe is standing up and the movement I caught was like another 
small buck okay. coming in to check that doe. But the buck's just, he's bedded there chewing his cut in the middle of the hayfield. It was ridiculous. I got some pretty cool video of him. And then I got out of there and I came back in the next day and he still had that doe bait up in that field and it snowed overnight. I tried to get in there with a buddy and a decoy to make something happen. A big, bigger, big enough buck came in that it pushed that doe out of there and the chase was on. I, long story short, I tracked that deer on hoof all day and ended up tracking him back into this bedding area. I set up on him on the ground, waited at dark. He came out by himself and I just couldn't get it done. Like he took off across this field at a weird angle. I tried to cut him off and it just, I just couldn't get it done. Yeah. It was like so many close encounters the whole time. And I'm just like, man, like so close. And then fast forward to the next year and I have that close encounter with him again. And then he gets shot, but that's, that's hunting, right? Yep. At the end of the yep. day, it's hunting. Like that, yeah. that's, what's so fun about it. Yeah. It's so fun. You know, it's so exhausting, but fun at the same time. Right. And you know, that you can go through multiple seasons and not fill a tag and then you fill that tag and you're just that much more grateful yeah, because you understand like how much time goes into it. And that's, that's another thing I tell my clients. In fact, it's usually the first conversation I have with them when I get on property. And I, I say the same thing all the time. I say, there's only one way to be consistently successful killing mature whitetails. There's only one way and it's an investment of time. So you can, you can pay me to, invest my time, right? Either speeding up the learning curve, helping you design this property, ruling out some of the mistakes, paying me or some of the land managers I work with to improve your property Mm -hmm. that helps. Or you can invest your own time into it, or you can go pay an outfitter who's invested his own time to develop a property and and do the scouting to put you on a deer. Right. Right. But one way or another, you're, you're, there's a time investment that goes into those deer. You know, you're putting a lot of time into a property, to, to build up that property, even, you know, manipulating the habitat to increase those opportunities, better movement through certain areas. That's still a huge time investment. It's a ridiculous time investment to do stuff like that. And then you end up spending less time hunting. Yeah. But you know, it's, again, it's, it's a time investment. So there's no way around that at the end of the day. So having a good plan is going to be the best way to save yourself time. I mean, any aspect of your life, if you have a plan, and and you learn from those mistakes and keep moving forward. You, you're always going to get better at yep. some point. You, know, right. you would hope you get better <laughs> you at some point, right? Yeah. But yeah, it comes back to just being honest with yourself and learning from those mistakes. And and I, and and you never stop making mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. Yep. And yep. again, that's the fun part. I mean, yeah. I, I used to I used to hunt really hard for the opportunity to have one chance at a mature buck a season. Yeah, I mean that that was my mindset for most of my life. And I usually did, you know, like looking back at how many opportunities, you know, the amount of bucks of a lifetime that I have on the wall right now for every one of those, there's 15 or 20 really, really nice deer that I either made a mistake on or passed up an opportunity on because I was hoping that they would, you know, go to the next level and then they got killed. I've only, Last year, or excuse me, two years ago now, was the first time and the only time so far in my entire hunting career on this property that I've had the opportunity to hunt a buck that I passed up in a previous season. So usually I'm after a buck or I pass a buck and then that buck gets killed by another hunter or never shows back up again. Uh, Or I'm after a buck 
like he's on my radar for a few years and I never have an opportunity. I never cross paths with him until the day that I kill him or screw up on him. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then it's gone. Like you only get that one chance, but the last few years, probably the last five years now I've had more mature buck encounters than I've ever had. You know, it went from having, you know, hoping working for that one encounter to having seven, eight, yeah. 10, you know, multiple encounters a season in right. crazy different situations. And it just comes from understanding those and making those moves. And like last year, I, the buck that I was after was this big mature eight pointer. And he happened to live in the Valley where our hunting cabin was. And all of my family decided they wanted to hunt a lot more last season, which was great. <laughs> it was great to have him around a lot more, but it just kind of screwed up my plan because I didn't anticipate all the activity in that valley. But I kept hunting it anyways to try and learn how those deer moved around the pressure. Sure. And it was actually mind-blowing to me to see how much activity there was. At one point, I was set up in the spot where I could see the back end of the farm, right? okay. a very busy dairy farm. I could see it. I could hear everything that was going on up there. When people are walking down the driveway and talking and the wind was blowing towards me, I could hear everything they were saying. On the other side of me, if I look over my shoulder, I'm looking down right on the top of our hunting cabin, like 60 yards away from it. And at one point, I could hear these kids talking. And I could hear someone talking at the farm and I'm watching someone. There's dogs running around. There's tractors driving around. These people are talking. The wind's blowing this way. And I could hear these kids talking up the valley and I watched this buck, this this four-year-old eight-pointer, pretty nice buck, come across the valley, stand down in the cover, wait for a little bit, pops out, crosses an open spot, stands in cover, waits for a little bit. And then I see these kids come over the crown of this hill, and all of a sudden the buck pops up on top. He had, like, completely skirted him. The kids walk right below me on the road to the cabin. At the same time, the buck goes around above me, and at one point, I've got this on like cell phone video because I was just getting in the tree stand when all this commotion was going on. Right. So I just had it all on cell phone. But at one point, that buck, if he would have taken one more step and looked down that hill, those kids were directly below him at like 35 yards. And the wind was at his back, so he couldn't hear as well. And he, if he, he couldn't see him because of the topography. And it was just crazy. I'm like, this is insane, like being a witness to that situation. But then it makes you think, like, how many of those situations are there? Yep. Those deer adapt to that. And that's where, you know, that pressure side of things, you know, I said cover and consistency are the two things that reduce pressure on deer. Consistency is a, a, an enormous factor in reducing yeah. pressure. Yeah. If, if something's consistent enough, a source of pressure is consistent enough, and there's enough attraction and, you know, the, the property has everything those deer need, they adapt to it. Right. You know, it's like seeing giant bucks that live in town. Right. Right. They, they just adapt to the pressure and they, they've learned when it, something's consistent, they can feel it out that risk versus reward. And then they get comfortable with it. And that's how, that's how you look at all the situations. And if there's consistent pressure, then it's still a source of pressure, but you can get away with, with a lot it. more of it. Right. So there's, yeah, there's so much to it, but you know, having that plan, that plan based on the homework that you've done or that theory that you've done developed by the homework that you've done. Right. And those four key elements just make it so easy. Like if you, you start to understand that you get that planner and just start, like, do you have a, a buck that you are oh, pursuing yeah. next year yeah, that you I, have history I'll, with? I will sit, I will send you some photos and uh, you know, we could chat a little bit about it for sure because He's been a, a thorn in my ass for the last two years. <laughs> so those are the fun ones. Yeah. Yeah. And dude, I've been having a blast going after because 
I, I, yeah, you know, it's just like yeah. you said, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm hoping he, he survived again until I know up until la- this past January, end of January, uh, we, I had a pic picture of him still. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully he continued to make it through. And, uh, it's very hard to find sheds on that property because again, the, there's really the food's not up there, you know, and, uh, man, I, I have found maybe one shed up there my whole entire life. It, yeah. It's just, it's not where the deer are during that late season. I mean, Thomas, even to be honest with you, I'll maybe put out a camera, let it soak all summer. I'll get a couple dough on it and I will not get a buck on camera up there until end of middle September, end of September. It's when that shift really gets into gear and then it's like, boom, it lights up. Right. Which is great. That's what you want. And I don't, I'm not the one that's watching them all summer. And then, you know, where did they go? (laughs) It's man. I can't wait till they finally come to, to that area. You know, that's, 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 that's uh, what I go through. Well, get, yeah. Get ahead of that. Mm -hmm. If you can, you know, there's something to be said about that shift itself. Yeah. Those bucks move into those areas and they, it, you know everything's new to them at that point so they they aren't as skittish yep. but at the same time if you put too much pressure on at that point in time then they're like nope i'm out of here i'm not yeah. gonna hang out right. so that's a critical moment for sure but but no it's, you start going through that information and break down those situations look at those pinch points do you run onyx or you run a different mapping software uh, i i run mainly spartan forge but i've used all a bunch you know okay. I've, I've used a, a ton of different ones i'm really like uh, I've been using Spartan Forge for the last year and a half, uh, whenever since it's uh, come out. And uh, some of the where I hunt here, it's it, some of the best mapping. I mean, you could see, yeah. you could date it and all that type of stuff. I have the fall foliage and everything like that. So one of the things that I do, you know, I talked a little bit about the important of the importance of visualization, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I do, when I'm mapping out properties and even my own properties and something I'd suggest anyone to do is just draw lines on your map where those ravines are or any form of obstruction that you're aware of. Not We're not talking just like a, a small here or there, but you know anything that's going to create some form of resistance for those deer. And then you can draw lines where those deer are actually traveling those known trails and you'll see how they're flowing through certain areas right. pretty quickly mm-hmm. if you don't already have that vision in your right. head. Right. Right. And I think most guys do, but sometimes it is as simple as that, like kind of explaining that. I, I, I just did a property for a, a buddy of mine. He's done a lot of, a lot of great things for me over the years and uh, he bought a, a neighboring property. So we, we put a really good plan together for it, but we walked the property a couple times. The first time was kind of a half cock afternoon or just like, yeah, I want to get your opinion real quick. Cause I, I've got a logger that went come in here. And then I basically was like, we, we should pump the brakes on that. There's some work to be done here before yeah. we do that. Um, but then we walked it again and, and I explained all these things to him and, you know, he's hunted a long time. He's been a very successful hunter, but not to that level of detail. Right. And, and he, you could tell like he was agreeing with stuff, but he really didn't, didn't seem excited about it. Okay. And, uh, and I'm like, I'll just let me go back and like put some things together here. And, and then we'll talk about this again. Let you soak it up. Cause there's a lot of information, you know, it's like trying to drink through a fire hose, <laughs> yeah. especially, 
you know, like you get me going talking about something, like I'll explain the whole thing. And like, okay, now you have all the information that you can process about wind. How do how can I ever absorb anything about food? Right, right, right. right. But uh, so I went back and I mapped everything out, and I, I use like a a color code just for consistency, and it all kind of actually coincides with those four key elements. When I lay out my plans, I break them down under these, this like color code and you kind of see this, how these things work together then. But once I did that, he was like, Oh yes, that makes perfect sense. Right. Right. But now I can see it. And I'm like, exactly. So anyone listening to this, if you want to try and visualize it, what I do is I, and I'm not familiar with, with uh, Spartan Forge, if, mm-hmm. like what you the can color break down with Onyx. Is. Yep, yeah. So you can do color. Yep. So what I do is I do uh, purple solid lines, and it, this isn't for any real reason other than I use the other essential or the key colors. Um, I use purple solid lines to like draw a line where there's a ravine, or you know, like if we're going to create pinch points, I'll draw those, and then we'll like you know fell trees and make kind of a mess in a certain area or something. Uh, purple solid lines are those those uh, resistance areas. And then I use yellow lines to map out deer trails or deer activity in, in areas and how that flows. And then uh, for bedding areas, I use blue and that's kind of coincides with the wind aspect. So I, I will outline bedding areas or tag those in blue uh, food sources. I outline those in green. Obviously that makes sense. Right. So if I'm mapping out food plots, uh, or, you know, ag fields, I'll have those all in, in green or some shade of green. And then sources of pressure, I do those in red. So stand okay. locations are red. Um, access and exit routes are red. Stuff like that. Uh, houses in the area, places where people park their cars, where I want the client to park his truck. I put those all in red. So you kind of see like that red is that pressure element and how that moves to your property. The blue is that low. We want it to be that low pressure element, right? Where that wind is more of a cooler color in general, keep the pressure out of those areas. And that green is the attraction for the food. So what I would advise anyone to do is just take some time. I mean, it can be when you're sitting out on a tree stand, you're bored or you're taking a poop in the morning better than scrolling <laughs> through Facebook, Spoiler. right? Yep. Um, start mapping out those areas on your property and and you don't have to use those colors, obviously, but if you use those, they make a little more sense. And then you start to visualize those things and you can change them and alter them and then just start to get a better feel. And it, it's such a simple process, right? It's a simple question to ask yourself or a series of questions. So, what I tell my clients all the time, it's like, this is how I operate. So I'll lay out a property and first we want to identify the pinch points, okay. right? The best pinch points. And, and again, most of those guys already have stands in or very near to those areas. So once you've identified the pinch points, then you ask yourself if it's an afternoon hunt, okay, the wind is going to dictate where those bucks bed. The food is going to dictate where those does bed. So you just ask yourself, where are those deer bedding mm-hmm. right now under these situa- under these conditions based on the food, based on the wind, based on the pressure, based on the timing? I mean, really, the four elements come into play at some level for these really essential questions, right? Right. So where are those deer bedding? That's first and foremost. The second is where are they feeding? Where do I anticipate them to be feeding? when they get up to move. So understand that when you're hunting in the afternoon, you're, you're going in to set up on a stationary animal, right? Right. So you have that advantage. Where are they going to be feeding? And then can I get past that bedding area to get to that pinch point without disturbing it 
And can I get past the feeding area to get out of that pinch point without disturbing it? If you know the answers to those questions and you answer yes to the last two that I can get past those areas in and out, then there's rarely ever a problem hunting that stand location. It's a very low pressure stand location under that set of conditions, right? Right. right. If you answer no to those questions, then you want to look at the risk versus reward, right? If I know I can get past them to get in and set up on them when they're in their bedding location, but I can't get past them on the way out, then I better make damn sure that I'm picking the perfect time to go hunt it. Cause if I blow those deer off that food source, they're not coming back during daylight the next day. Right. And certainly not with any advanced warning. Right. So, and then the other question, the last question would be the timing element. When do I anticipate those deer to be there? Is it going to be early season? Is it going to be late season? Is it going to be morning or is it going to be afternoon? And if, if you're going in there in the afternoon and you think of that logically and you go, Oh, actually I would, kind of suspected them to be here in the morning, then you shouldn't be hunting there in the afternoon because you're just putting pressure on, right? Yeah. And then the same goes the other way around. If you're going in for a morning hunt, where are those deer feeding? Where are they going to bed? Can I get past that feeding area to get into this spot without disturbing it? Can I get past that bedding area to get out of that spot without disturbing it? Because you, you can't assume that they're only ever going to take one path of travel from point A to point B. Right. You're just trying to predict that. And if they get to where you thought they were going to be because your plan was mostly correct, but they take a different route, then you still have to be able to get out of there to live to see another day, right? Expand that window of opportunity. So if you, if you ask those questions, it really simplifies it. So when it comes to, you know, just looking at current stand locations you have and picking a stand location to hunt or trying to find a new stand location, ask yourself those questions. And if you answer no, but maybe you can make it happen. That's just a higher pressured stand versus, you know, you can get in get out clean. Then it's a low pressured stand. Dude, this was amazing. I've, this is a one for, uh, this is one for the books, man. Well, hopefully it's helpful. I, I mean, like I said, I, 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 I feel like I have this conversation frequently I, and yeah. never gets old talking about these situations, but it's just, again, I, it just simplified, try to simplify those things, right? Yeah. Don't overthink it and, and try to just apply those things to your situation and, and right. prove or disprove those theories. That's why it's it's just such a simple right. thing to me, anyways. You know, it's like that. It does it? It takes a time investment, right? That's right. that's the side effect. It takes a little bit of a time investment. But that's the thing is, this is something that you can be doing right now. Yeah, exactly. Right now, you know, shed hunting is great, but sheds aren't going to tell you where to kill that deer next year. Right. It's just a you know another hunk of bone that you can get your hands on, which is rewarding, right? Right. That that's great, but that's not going to help you kill that deer. Right. So. If you have free time right now, you know, and it's something you can do at 10 o'clock at night or you can do at 6 o'clock in the morning when you're drinking your coffee, go through those pictures, you know, go through your old trail cam pictures, start with that pattern tracker. That's where I would start. And you can go back and you can either fill that out by location or by a specific animal if you have an animal that you've targeted and just jot down the the time, date, and location and then go back and look at the wind or the weather history on that location and what the wind was doing, the morning wind is going to place him in that bedding area. And if the morning wind is consistent with the evening wind, then you know he's going in and out of there potentially mm-hmm. or getting up and moving through it. But if that wind flips and then all of a sudden you see like, you know, that that's where you'll see those midday 
random movements. Yeah. It's usually when that wind changes and then you'll start to learn stuff. And, right. and it's, it's pretty simple to start putting those pieces of the puzzle together. Once you get that foundation, right. You, you build that outline, that square, and then things kind of fall into place. Yeah. Well, this is where, uh, I mean, hopefully one, you're, you're, this is a great podcast for those that are listening to go back, rewind, you know, listen to what Thomas is saying, but you know, go to that, the, untamed ambition and pick up yourself the whitetail ambition annual success planner i already did even prior to to having thomas come on the podcast i'm looking forward to getting that and doing exactly what he said and i wrote this down i'm going to name this episode invest your whitetail time because (laughs) you know i feel like that was something obviously been i've been we've been doing this podcast for three years but i've invested my time however you know, my time was also for my family. My my job is teaching. I was coaching at the time. This past year, I've invested a lot more time in the Whitetail Woods and doing what really my passion is and my joy and my love. And it's things are starting to you know take it go a little bit better, basically, right? Put yeah, put, put yeah. luck and more more in my side of of the corner. So. It, I'm excited, man. I'm excited to take what I've just learned. I mean, this is what, I don't know. I don't know if you could see, there we go. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's I, a, it's, I wrote a, that's cr- a page full, that's, that's a page full man. And I'm you excited. Handwriting. Oh, I mean, thank I'm, you. <laughs> mine's like chicken scratch. I can read it. I yeah. may as well be a doctor. Yeah. Right. I'm thrilled to, to have this opportunity for you to talk to, to myself, to the, of the people that are going to listen to this episode. Dude, I, this was this was awesome. I, I don't even know really. So I, I really appreciate your time and, and everything like that. So obviously I already plugged your website, but where can people follow along, listen, check you out, message you all that stuff. Yep. Uh, websites, probably the easiest place to find all the information that you need. Um, otherwise you, uh, you can find me on Instagram. You can shoot me a message on there too the untamed ambition. Um, I think it's the underscore untamed underscore ambition or okay. whatever the fanciness is there, but yeah, you should be able to find me on there. Um, otherwise, yeah, just, uh, you can shoot me an email too. If, if you prefer email Thomas at the untamed ambition.com. Awesome. So Dude. yeah, any, if anyone has any questions, feel free to hit me up. Uh, if, if you don't get a response from me right away, just understand that my days are busy, but I <laughs> always respond at some point in time. Yep, <laughs> so exactly. I feel like I, I'm ignoring you by any means. No, you. that's awesome, dude. Well, thank you so much, Thomas. And everybody, please go check out what he has going on because it is great stuff. Um, man, I, I appreciate it, dude. Well, everybody, enjoy this one, and we'll see you next time. Antler up.